Hello and welcome. I am your host, Darren Mulcahy, and you are listening to Raising the Bar, where we talk all things health, happiness, and strength. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jacob Harden, owner of Prehab 101 and director of rehab at Orlando Sports Rehab. Jacob, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, man. No, thank you. Thank you for giving up your time. I, uh, I imagine you're, you're busy at the moment with online um, clinics and appointments like most, yeah. most people are adapting to. Yeah. Yep. 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 Just got uh, done with a patient appointment doing this one and then I'll have a, you get to play dad the rest of the day with the two-year-old. Brilliant. <laughs> pretty diverse day. So yeah. Florida, Florida, you're, Florida, you're based Jacob. Um, so you're a good bit across the world for most of the listeners. <laughs> yep. Yep. I, uh, over, over here in, I, we, I would say sunny Florida, but we've been getting rain for the past three days. So really, and would yeah. you, and would you believe Ireland is in the, in, in the midst of a mini heat wave right now? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was not the case last time I was there. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we don't often get mini heat waves, but we've got 25 degrees today. So Celsius. <laughs> so that's, that's hence, hence the sleeveless top I'm wearing. Nice. Nice. <laughs> so today, for our listeners, what we're going to be focusing on, we have a couple of different talk, uh, topics that we want to go through. Um, we want to start off with is, is bulletproofing the competitive powerlifter. So the big rocks, essentially. The science and pain of injuries. The importance of prehab. And implementing rehab into your strength program. Okay. So there are some of the areas we want to jump in. So if you are a person who regularly goes to the gym, if you're a competitive powerlifter, competitive strength athlete, if you're someone that plays sport in general, or then again, if you're someone who has a genuine interest in this field, this is going to be a really good episode. Jacob is a well-renowned and well-versed um, doctor of chiropractic, and I couldn't have got a better guy on to talk about the ins and outs, especially from a diverse range. Um, so I'm going to let Jacob jump in and give a bit of his background, and then we're going to get into these topics which I'm really excited to get started with. So, Jacob, would you mind giving our listeners just a brief background on yourself, both from maybe uh, an educational and maybe like an exercise or a sports background that you had maybe when you were younger? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, yeah, doctor of chiropractic. I've been in my fifth year of practice now, uh, private practice. I kind of have a little niche in the sports active population. Um, so, that's kind of where I tend to uh, tend, tend to work the most strength athletes being a big portion of my patient population uh, because I competed in powerlifting uh, prior to, uh, I guess a few years back, haven't done as much since work got busier as life goes. But um, so before that I went to the university of Texas and graduated there with my bachelor's in human biology, then went to Palmer college of chiropractic and got my doctorate. I've played a pretty diverse sports background from basketball, track and field, um, but I mainly played tennis and baseball. So I was an overhead athlete for a good portion of my sporting career. Um, then as I went into college, I went, got much more into the strength sports side of things. It just became more of a passion than anything. Uh, that got me, led me down the path of doing programming and everything else and how I, I guess, started a lot of this knowledge that I have. Um, and have carried forward a lot of that into my professional career as well. But I uh, competed in powerlifting a few years ago. Did, I've done a few comps there. Um, and 
I think in the 74 kg weight class and one of the little scrawny boys, but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's me. And now just, uh, continuing to, now I'm training more for health and longevity than anything, but, um, that, that's me. That's where I'm at. Brilliant. Um, I love getting people on that have like a real good educational background, but have also walked the walk and competed to some degree. I think it's a lovely balance to get in a mix. You know, it, it brings that art and that science together and you get a real good effect. Um, with regards Orlando sports rehab, um, what, what is your kind of like your, your philosophy there as a, as a facility or how do you treat patients or how does it usually go? Yeah. So we use education and exercise as our first line treatment. And my, my thought process, or I have a lot of thoughts around healthcare in general, but I view my role in healthcare and treatment more so as a consultant and guide or as a coach than anything else. I feel that the reason my involvement with your rehab is really dependent on how much assistance you feel that you need. And when you feel that you don't need my assistance anymore and that you can take it on your own, that you are okay to move forward without me. And so that's really how we, we split up, we put a lot of our focus on the educational component of what we do and making sure that our patients are very well versed in understanding what they're doing and why they're doing it. Because the ultimate goal is to help you take your rehab into your own hands. Uh, because that's what I would do. You know, I've, had a number of injuries. I, I rehab them on my own. And the number one thing there is because I can, I have the knowledge to do that and I know what to do. So that's kind of our philosophy. We take a very active approach. My thought is if you get injured under load and load's probably going to be the thing that helps to get you back to it. Um, we try and keep, we try and really focus on your functional activities, the things that you want to do rather than just telling you to um, step away from training and fix all these things that are wrong with you. We try and keep you in training as much as possible, keep your fitness as high as possible, um, while also uh, give, helping you get back to a full functional capacity so that you're not limited anymore. I love that. I think that's amazing. Um, I love the idea of educating people. It gives them more autonomy, as you said. And, and I thought, uh, in further down the line, if the ever, issue ever does come up, they have, they have some tools they can use again, you know? Um, mm -hmm brilliant and it reminds me of or i can create similarities between the idea of giving somebody a meal plan versus educating them on better nutritional choices giving them sure. a meal plan and if if that food isn't there to know they totally fall apart so yeah. similar to what you're saying you give people some education and some understanding and then they can make their own choices once they have you know finished their treatment with you or whatever no, it's brilliant. It's really good. And I love the idea of trying to get an athlete to continue his, his normal training or as, as much of it as he can and trying to bring them back to life through, uh, through load as opposed to, to rest. Would I be right in saying that a couple of years ago, the, the, the common theme in the, the physical medicine world would have been to rest and move away from the movement that caused the injury, whereas now it's a little bit different? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know exactly where that timeline has shifted because I think being in the middle of it, I've, it's been more of a gradual shift for me. Okay. Um, I didn't necessarily see a hard, a hard delineated line there when it happened, but there's definitely been a trend of, well, and it's still, I mean, it's still very prevalent to, some, to be told, just stop doing the thing that hurts you, right? Just stop squatting, just stop deadlifting. Um, whereas now, 
we would, there's going to be a lot more voices out there telling you to just modify that and let's work through it or work around it while we also attack the thing that's bothering you and that you can continue to train and continue to stay active. And the more that we've learned about pain and the, the more that thought process has start to flesh out because we now see that pain does not necessarily mean that we are harming ourselves. Uh, it's more so a reflection of sensitivity. Okay. And pain and the science of pain is something we want to get into because I'm really interested in that. Um, I, along with a number of our powerlifters across the world, are continuously getting knocks and niggles, and it's just <laughs> so. Um, and there, yeah. So some understanding for myself is 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 brilliant. So um, okay, let's let's start with that competitive powerlifter. Okay. Right. So what what in, in your views? Uh, Jacob, are the big rocks for a powerlifter to stay injury-free? Where, where do we start? Because there is a lot of noise there with regards like mobility drills, activation drills, and this and that. Um, for you, what's the, what's the lowest hanging fruit we can start with? Uh, so the lowest hanging fruit is most, I would say for most people, it's probably your programming. It's going to be, it's going to be the programming. So if we just think about how do injuries occur, then the biggest thing to think about there is that your body has a certain capacity to withstand stress and it's going to be different for different areas of your body based upon your genetics, your injury history, your training history, et cetera. Um, so you have a certain capacity to withstand stress. And so let's, to give an example to that, you are a, you're an intermediate lifter and you can currently squat 150 to 200 kilos uh, for six reps, your current weekly volume is somewhere around eight to 10 sets. Okay. Like that, that's kind of your picture. That would be a good idea of what your kind of your current capacity is. Cause that's what you're currently training at. If you were to do something crazy where you, you know, are jumping 20 kilos a week and, you know, all of a sudden you went from 10 sets per week to up to 15, 18 sets per week you're really going to be increasing your risk of, you know, disrupting the system quite a bit there. And that would increase your injury risk because you're operating outside of what you're currently adapted to. So having a sound progressive training program that takes into account the, where you're currently coming from and then builds you up over time to where you want to go, which in our case is going to be bigger, stronger, right. Then, you know, doing that in a way that doesn't lead to large spikes or increases in loading, um, both systemically, but also locally at a certain area is going to probably be our lowest hanging fruit where and that there's a lot of different ways we can take that where it's, you know, just be consistent with a certain program, but where we might see the largest um, risk there would be when somebody like kind of changes their program because most programs are pro have a, probably have a pretty consistent theme about them unless you're I guess you're doing small off right <laughs> yeah <laughs> but which i guess the the theme there is survive mm -hmm. but but like you take something like small off right and as an example most people are not currently adapted to that level of weight increase or that level of volume of squatting week to week and it is and we're talking like, you know, 20 pound increases every week and three to four days per week of squatting. It's just not something that some people are adapted to. And we look at it and there's a, 
um, anecdotally, a very, very high rate of injury there, at least what is reported. People talk about like, I didn't survive it. But if you do survive it, you're going to get amazing gains. Yeah. Um, but like, so if you, when you're changing programs, um, you need to be looking at things like what was I currently doing? So what was the volume there? What was the load like there? And, you know, what was my frequency looking like there? And then you want to not do something that's totally drastically different without some sort of like build in period to it. So if you were only normally squatting or deadlifting once a week, then you all of a sudden went into some sort of specialization program where you were doing three times a week, you know, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility to see a tendinopathy pop up, you know, or to see your elbow start hurting whenever you transition, the first time you transition to low bar, when you've only ever done high bar, right? These are changes in the localized loading. And if you're not used to it, you're not adapted to it, um, or you don't build into that, then that's going to be a, a risk. The, that would probably be your biggest one, right? Our second biggest piece there is going to be recovery. So making sure that you are giving your body adequate time to recover between bouts of stress, because we are stressing our bodies pretty heavily and uh, we are going to need to be able to recover from that. So understanding kind of what your big uh, physiological recovery things are and that's you know your sleep your nutrition your hydration getting those things on point and not just you know trying to mask mask some poor recovery by going and foam rolling and making yourself feel better for 15 minutes uh, and then probably last thing then there is going to be just listening to your body and like you know you're not it's really easy on paper to say you know you do this amount of reps then you should be able to increase the weight and then you should be able to do this amount of reps and like on paper, everything looks pretty, right? And everything, but um, human beings don't fit into an Excel spreadsheet. So you're going to wake up certain days and something's just going to be more sensitive. Something's going to hurt. You're going to be more tired. Um, and you need to respond to that and you need to learn how to auto regulate. So, auto regulation being that next big rock that you need to kind of learn how to do. Even if you're not necessarily using RPE scale or something, you need to at least be able to understand dude, I'm feeling like dog crap today and I need to take it easy. And maybe I need to learn to survive and fight another day or today I feel wonderful and today's the day to push. Um, you start doing that along with just, I'd say like do your freaking accessory work and <laughs> build up the capacity of your body over time and you're well on your way. Okay. I've got, I've got tons of questions for you here now. All right. So. <laughs> Good. 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 Buckle in. Good thing we have time. <laughs> okay. So, all right. For anyone listening, um, I mean, Jacob, Jacob is talking about that spike, uh, just so we can make it as clear as possible. So we've done this, we've done X amount of training. And if we increase it drastically to Y, if it's too much of a, if it's too much of a spike, it's going to cause an injury essentially. Okay. Yeah, it could, it could, right. It could. There's never, there's never a, there's never a guarantee of injury. And there's never a guarantee that we can ever prevent an injury. Okay. So there's always a risk. The question is just, are you more or less likely? Okay. Um, you know, for mo since we're all, since we're powerlifters here, how do you think that you're going to fare if you go and run a marathon tomorrow? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, probably probably not. <laughs> not too great. Right. Especially let's say that you ran a marathon all downhill too. Right. <laughs> how your knees going to, how your feel is going to, how your knees going to feel tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> probably not so hot. Right. So it's just a different loading than you're used to. You haven't trained for it. You haven't prepared for that. So make sure that you're prepared for what you're doing. 
Um, that's an extreme example on a less extreme example. Um, let's say that you only ever do straight bar curls. Okay. And then this new training cycle, you decided you're going to implement incline curls. So now you're lean back. getting a little more sore than you're used to. Okay. Um, and that's just a change in the loading pattern. So how you might do that is you, if, if that was something that you didn't want, you wanted to kind of mitigate that effect a bit, then you might say, all right, you know, we're going to do five sets of incline curls this week. We're going to do eight the next week. Then we'll build it up to 12 in week three, you know, and you gradually just transition yourself over. That's kind of that load management. And, and that makes total sense when, when it's explained like that, you know, and, so how how would you so first of all would you recommend like number of sets is probably one of the best gauges of fatigue kind of or load management um or would yeah. you like total like total kilos or uh, like a stress index what do you think because there is a couple of different variables to use is yeah. there any in particular that you kind of you preference towards i like num i like number of sets is a is a very good one to to use it's going to give you but also consider the rpe that you're working at in that there's not and this is why there's not really a perfect number to that you can use there i wouldn't use total tonnage because you know what if you do a few extra warm-up sets right yeah. or what if you did a lot of rpe6 work that's going to be dr a drastically different stress than rpe9 right yeah so you will need to think about, and you could think about like sets at a certain RPE if you really wanted to get into the nitty gritty of it. But I think most people would probably do well by saying number of sets above a seven out of 10 RPE would be okay. a good way to go about it. And maybe um, how often are you getting close to failure would be a good way to do, go about it. That's going to be a good um, look at volume because, and you could look at repetitions too. I mean, I don't know that most for most of us, our repetitions are going to stay in a, they're going to have a pretty um, natural transition from one to the next. Like, I don't know how many people are going from 12 to two, right. In their programs yeah. now, but you might go from two to 12 if you were coming off of a peak and a meat prep and then coming into a more like a volume block. So that might be a spot where you want to think about it. Like, Ooh, you know what? You're not adapted to a lot of high repetition work. So there is going to be a large amount of working tonnage that you're not used to there. Um, you might want to think about that and say ease into some of that volume that you're not used to yet. Okay. The number of sets does seem to be the simplest. Um, yeah, yeah, for in sure. My, in my opinion, it does because like there is like there, even with like, even with when you, if you do tonnage, it's just a lot of numbers on one yeah. side, you know, whereas number of sets and I presume do you, you work as a squat, a set amount of sets, the bench, a set amount of sets, and the deadlift, or do you interlink the squat and deadlift together? Do you think there's too much of a correlation there? It depends on what you're really looking at it for. If, and so this is where like your injury history might come out, okay. you know, a little bit more. It might play more of a role. Or what are you actually trying to look at? You know, if we're talking about like you're, let's say that you're someone who's had just a chronic history of lower back issues, you might want to link them. Yeah. right because they're pretty linked in the lower back stress area um if you've had a ton of hip issues you might want to link them but 
if you're thinking about it purely from a knee standpoint, I don't know that I would link the deadlift in with the squat because the squat's just so much more knee dominant than the deadlift is. I would probably, I'd probably kind of pull those apart in that case. So there's different ways to think about that. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways to think about it, but you can think about it systemically from just total workload volume that you're doing. You can look at it as sets per muscle group per week that you're doing sets per session per muscle group that you're doing. Um, all these things can start to, and if you, and you know, joint specific areas, if you wanted to, um, but muscle muscle group typically would cover that. Right. So like if you look at erector spinae lower back, then a squat and a deadlift and your back extensions are all going to kind of fall into that category. But then whenever you pull it down to the knee and say, well, what kind of quad work am I doing? You're probably not counting in a lot of your height. You're not going to count your hyper extensions and your deadlifts in that you're going to look at your squats and your leg extensions. That makes a lot of sense, especially from, from a powerlifting point of view, where we can just you know focus on set areas because we're not really, we won't be doing as much isolation work as maybe like a bodybuilder would. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, number of sets is, is, is simple and it's, um, it's tangible. And I would have made that mistake of, of, of segregating the squat and the deadlift. And whereas my issue um, is an adductor issue, but they're so heavily linked um, whether it be squatting or deadlifting because I'm a sumo deadlifter. And, and okay. that's interesting. I, I would have always just, because my understanding was to, to say, to keep them separate, but it makes a lot of sense when you explain it like that. Yeah. So just know what you're trying to look at in that case. And if you're looking at it from a performance standpoint and you know, you're trying to think about how much tolerable volume do you have before your performance tries to kind of starts to drop off a bit, you might want to look at linking them because it is, there is still a, a lot of like, stuff working together in those cases and pulling back on one may allow you to push a little harder on the other. And as a powerlifter gets more advanced in their career, right? Um, would you agree that like increasing volume is a very important part of becoming a stronger lifter? So mm-hmm. essentially we're taking, and we just take, for example, somebody does 15 sets of bench and 15 cents sets of squat slash deadlift a week over okay. time. Are they starting to, are they start, will they be looking to increase that to maybe 16 to 17 to 18? How does that work if we're looking to increase volume? Not necessarily, actually. I don't, I don't think you necessarily have to maybe in the, uh, like the upper echelons of, um, of volume you might want to, or like, sorry, the upper echelons of like how advanced you are, you might need to, but while tracking volume via tracking working volume via number of sets is a very good way to go about it. The really, when you think about why do we need to increase volume over time, it's, we need to, we need to progressively overload over time, right? That's where tonnage actually makes a little more sense because if you are doing more, um, more tonnage of like you're doing more work at a hundred pound a hundred pounds for 10 reps at an rpe6 then you know that was what you used to do and now you're doing 300 pounds for 10 reps at rpe6 right it can be the same number of sets but because that weight is more you have progressively overloaded and you have technically increased your volume over time so that's one way to look at it so i don't because you know you would think like 
something as simple as like starting strength may have you doing what nine sets, nine sets per week or something. Right. And then a lot of the intermediate programs get you up into the 12 to 15 range and in sets per week, you know, you would think like, Oh wow, I'm going to have to be doing like 30, 40 sets a week by the time I'm 10 years into my career. And that's just not feasible. Right. And you don't see many people doing that really what we're looking at in these case, well, really what we're trying to do in these cases is we're trying to get an overload, right? We're trying to get a disruption in the system. So where you have to increase over time, and it's actually much, it's probably a much slower increase in number of sets over time is you're just looking for a certain stimulus. And there's a lot of ways to get that certain stimulus. So there's a concept of internal and external load, okay? External load being a measure of what you did, the number of sets, the weight on the bar. You know, I did 300 pounds for six reps, okay? Internal load being a measure of how difficult was it for you, all right? So that would be like your RPE scale or just saying, wow, that was tough. Really what we are after in our training is not to move more weight on the bar, at least not on a day-to-day basis, over time, we are looking for an increase in that external loading to say we have gotten stronger, correct? But in the day-to-day training, the process of getting stronger, you are just looking for stimulus. You are actually going in there and saying, I am looking for five bouts of moderate to moderate, uh, moderate to difficult work today. I'm looking to stress my body at a seven to eight RPE level five times over. That might be 300 pounds today. That might be 290. It might be 310 because that just depends on how, where you're at that day. Where's your fatigue level at that day? Where are you feeling? Where are you at? Um, You're trying to do it for that six rep range because that's the rep range that you're working at will determine kind of some of the adaptation that you get. You know, you want, at seven to eight difficulty at six reps. So the weight will vary there. As you get stronger over time, if you stayed at that 300 pounds, you always did that 300 pounds, right? Eventually that RPE is gonna go down and you're no longer getting the stimulus from it that you're actually after. You're losing the stimulus. So you must increase the weight over time in order to get more in order to maintain the stimulus. Okay. So with that, you can, instead of looking at it as number of sets at certain weight at certain reps or whatever, you're looking at it as I need a certain number of bouts of this stress level on my body to cause disruption and advance and basically set off an adaptation process. At some point, in your training career, the, that number of bouts of stress level will no longer be sufficient to drive the adaptation. Five sets of RP8 will no longer be sufficient to, to set off the adaptation process. And that is where you have to start thinking about increasing your sets. Now I need six uh, sets at that same RP8 in order to set off the adaptation level. That's probably a much longer time frame than, you know, that, that's probably more, that could be a year's time frame before you need to go from five sets to seven sets or whatever. 
but you really look at it as like, when do I just stop progressing at being able to go forward with, and you know, you're more using our periodization and everything else to manage fatigue, but when do you consistently not see any sort of performance improvement out of that level of volume? Um, that's whenever you want to think about increasing sets, but from a just increasing actual volume over time, progressive overload, um, that can happen in a number of ways. That's, that's really simplified and make it really practical. Essentially just provide a stimulus that's going to give a response, as you said, and we just, we keep looking for that stimulus and the stronger you get, the, the more you'll have to advance it or just alter it essentially, isn't it? Yeah. And where most people get in, where a lot of people get in trouble is they get married to the piece of paper okay. and they say, I have to, the paper said I had to do this weight today. The paper said I had to be here and like, but in reality, you know, the fact that you're supposed to do 75% today was written on that piece of paper because it was meant to elicit a certain stress level, right? When you give a certain percentage of your one RM for a certain number of reps, it's just meant to give you a certain, a certain RPE. It should be, you know, you do 70% for six, it's going to be pretty easy. It's going to be, you know, not, not a whole lot of difficulty there. So but if you all of a sudden have 85% for that same six reps, you're going to get a lot more challenging. And, but 85% is not 85% every day. At least it's not, the, it's not the same absolute number. It's not always 300 pounds. So a lot of people get married to what the paper says. And it's like, well, no, I need to do five more pounds this week, or I'm just not progressing. I'm not getting better. In reality, it, you might just have not slept as well last night. And when you go in, you do that, that number that's on the paper and the intent of the program was to give you a stress at an RPE eight. And today it's actually an RPE nine and a half. And you're overreaching the stress level that was actually intended. Or you go in and it's really easy and you're at a seven or it's a six and a half. And you're like, you actually are leaving gains on the table because you're not stressing yourself the way you need to. And so that's really the beauty of the auto-regulation aspect where you start to look at, you're trying to elicit a certain level of difficulty. Is this supposed to be easy? Is it supposed to be moderate? Is it supposed to be difficult? Where are you in your program? And then you want to get that. And when you start to learn to manage that and move, and so the paper just becomes more of a guide to you and saying, oh yeah, that's a target. So I should be in that ballpark. You know, you don't get married to having you. I don't have to see five, 10 pounds increased on the bar every week. Um, but maybe over the course of a month, you have seen some progress, then you know you're going to float in the right range. That's something myself I can relate to 110%. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's not being patient and being obsessed with um, the set number you've put down on, on paper and the thought of going behind that is like oh my god i'm regressing but yeah. as you as you said we're looking to create a stress or we're looking to create a stimulus if i'm a little bit fatigued that same stress or stimulus will be achieved even if it's a small if it, even if it's five pounds lighter or five kilos your muscles lighter. are dumb yeah <laughs> it's on the bar right like yeah. your muscles are dumb they, they just don't know um now if you see trends of like your external load your weight on the bar is continuously going down dude look let's evaluate that, right? Let's be logical here and let's be rational. But if it's a, on, a on a daily occurrence, like a single day occurrence and you have to take a light week, this happened to me whenever I was, um, last March, 
I would traveled over to Australia and you know, 22 hour flight. And I was supposed to do, I was supposed to do 230 for, uh, for a triple on bench press. And I get in there and I'm like, 210 is starting. I'm like feeling it. I'm like, oh, wow. Like, I feel like dog crap today. <laughs> this is not good. And I ended up doing 220 and like, I was, I was at or almost above the target RPE at the time, which was an eight. And so I did my work at 220 and like I had done 220 for five, not two weeks prior to that. And today I'm doing it for a triple and I'm like, crap, crap. Like, you know, the thoughts start to go through my head. Am I regressing? I'm like, no, no stupid. You're just flew 22 hours over across the world and you're probably a bit fatigued and you're out of your element and you're sleeping on an unfamiliar bed, yada, yada. You know, so I just like, I adhered to the plan. I was just like, all right, let's just like, take it easy today. We'll push whenever we can push. And I got back and I hit 240 for that triple, not three weeks later back at home. You know, it was there. Yeah. And like stories like that, I guarantee you that people listening here, like that has happened to me and I've pushed on and I picked up a niggle uh, or I've not done the weight and I felt like I'm going backwards. Me too. Yeah. And they're, they're common feelings. They're feelings that are are attached when you take your, when you take strength training seriously, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. But that's also like that, that thing that makes us like that drive, that fire that helps us be so passionate about it and helps us adhere to the, adhere to the program can is also something that can be a hindrance to us when we become too married to it and we can't step back objectively away from our own feelings around our training. Yeah. It, and again, I can relate 110%. I've even had to, I myself, I do a lot of my own programming and I, I went back to my old kind of coach and, you know, just to keep eyes on it because when you're, when you're in charge yourself, it can be very hard to step back and say, pull back here. Whereas if you have someone else calling the shots, you're more inclined to, to know you're more inclined to follow the protocol basically. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So that's really interesting, really interesting. And so let's just, just, let's kind of tie up the bulletproofing, the powerlifters. So we've got programming, not taking too big a jump week to week, just on that, actually, what would you recommend? Or is there a recommendation on, jumps week to week or would you just say stick to the prescribed rpe above all i can you repeat that question i lost you there on the internet connection yeah so just on the not too big not taking too big a jump week to week is there like a prescribed amount that you would recommend or would you just say stick to the rpe if in doubt uh, no so like if you were yeah i mean sticking to rpe is wonderful but the issue that you run into there is you have to actually be able to, you know, feel it out. You have to understand what that is. I think that if you, we probably could use a little bit of a percentage, but that percentage is going to need to be based upon how hard was what you just did in relation to what was the intent, what was the intended target. So um, we'll stick to our RP8 example. And you are going to be doing a little, a very simple example. We'll say five reps at RP8 this week, five P, five reps at RP8 next week. Okay. So everything is literally the same. We're just looking to move weight as needed. So to this week you came in, you did 200 pounds and it was like, you rated that as like, wow, that was really fast. It really didn't challenge me too much. RP6. Okay. 
So you are below your prescribed target. You can probably take, you're going to be able to take a larger jump there in per, even percentage increase than if you were at an RP seven and a half this week. And you're like, you know, I was floating on the border of where I wanted to be. Um, but I, well, you know, where was I, where was I actually? And, you know, so if it's easy, if you're further away from your target, you can take a larger percentage increase. I would say that, you know, if you, let's say that you hit your RPE target this week, you're at the eight, right? Um, you have a couple choices. You can come in, you can keep the weight the exact same the next week and try and see, and basically just warm up to it and see, all right, is that the same? Does it feel the same? Is it the same difficulty this week? Or maybe you take like a 1%, 2% increase, which is in reality just going to be two and a half kilos or five pounds. Um, and then you warm up to that and say, all right, does that feel like an RP8 this week? Because we would assume you're going to get somewhat stronger from the adaptation that you've now kicked in, right? If you were at a, and I think that, um, I think Eric Helms has talked about this either in a paper or a research review or something, but he has done something where if you do for every half point RPE that you were off from your intended target, you increase 2% or decrease 2%. So if I was at a, if my target was eight and I got to it and I rated my working sets today as a seven, then I would increase 4%. For next time okay. um you know if you were at a six it'd be eight percent if you were at seven and a half it'd be two percent so every half rpe point off it would be a two percent increase and i followed that rule and i like it it actually seems to work pretty well um in, mo in most cases it uh so yeah I, I, I like that one for for the most part and you can utilize that in uh in the moment like set to set increase changing your weights or you could you or you could do it like a last set RPE if you wanted to, where you only take the last set or the average RPE across the whole workout, and then utilize it to change the weight for the next uh, the next week. Yeah, and that is definitely um, if someone has like a four by eight and the set RPE is eight, we'll say, but only the last set turns out to be an eight, but the first three were like sixes and sevens. Mm -hmm. That's that's that to me is where the complications can sometimes come with RPE. In that is, if mm -hmm. someone has a lot of sets, that the discrepancy between the working the first set and the last set. Um, but as you said, getting an average of all four sets would probably be the most suitable approach there. I think. Yeah, it probably would be. Um, if you're a coach, or even if you're coaching yourself, you also should probably look at that and say, "This person was strong enough for that to be a six RPE, right? Because the first set was it was, and it was just when they were fresh. So they fatigued pretty quickly." And, or, you know, so you might want to question what was their rest times okay. in that case, because then you realize, oh yeah, I was taking one minute between sets because I was rushed or like they were just trying to like get a sweat session in. Um, and like, you know, maybe you should keep that, maybe, you know, we're in a strength block. You might want to take that more of like a three minute rest in between these sets because, you know, you should be able to maintain your RPE across the sets. Um, because if you don't solve that, then while they may start an RP and we increase the, let's say we say it was um, six, seven, seven, eight. So our average is going to be a seven. Um, and we increase 4% for next week. Well, now they might start at seven 
and then they get eight eight but then that last set's a nine which over so now you have one that was actually under shooting and one that was overshooting um because you didn't solve the issue of maybe like their rest time was off so like step back objectively in that case and say like well where was it like are you just not do you want do you not have the work capacity for that level of volume yet um that those number of sets in a single given bout of stress um or do or you know is your rest times off or what's going on there for me whenever i like i'm in florida when summer hits my volume tolerance just tanks because i'm i because i work out in my garage okay and i'm outside <laughs> the heat the heat yeah the heat just... the heat gets me man I felt the same today in our 22, 23 degrees. You're, <laughs> you're probably laughing. <laughs> um, yeah, so we got programming, not taking too big a jump week to week. Recovery, and so that's like our common recovery modalities. I presume we're talking like uh, stretching and foam rolling. Is, is that what you're talking on no, there? So whenever I say recovery, I want you to think about two types of recovery. There's physiological recovery and there's perceived recovery. Okay. okay. When we look at recovery in the literature, it's going to be defined as your ability to repeat your repeat a given performance. All right. So if you were able to squat 200 pounds for six reps this week, then that's going to cause some sort of disruption in the system we know that you, because of you are fatigued, then if you tried to do that later this afternoon, you're not going to be able to because that was your maximum effort at the, at the time point. And now you are fatigued, you can't do as much. Um, there's going to be a recovery period before you can do that again, okay? So the, um, and the largest, there's three main components to why you're fatigued there. There's peripheral fatigue, which, is really like what causes like the burn in the muscles and your ability to that's what makes you reach failure it's a fairly short-lived fatigue and it settles almost between sets there's central fatigue which is your nervous system's inability to actually send to fully activate that muscle that can come on over the duration of a workout or more so after like a long cardio bout you actually can't activate the muscle as well there's some inhibition there and then the third one, which is the more, but that, that one is also, uh, that central fatigue is, tends to be fairly short-lived as well. It can actually reverse and rebound um, and give you a potentiation effect where you can actually do more. But then the one that's a little more long-term is you're going to have some tissue damage that gets associated with that training session. And that tissue damage is going to cause like a secondary, uh, a secondary central fatigue. So you can't activate the muscle as well because it's damaged and it needs to heal. It's almost like a protective response by your body. And so, you know, foam rolling and stretching and stuff is not going to change that. It's just not, time is going to change that and giving your body the building blocks that it needs to make that healing process happen is going to change that. So when we look at your recovery, we would say 200 by six was your maximum effort at this time point, or like maybe um, if you're trying, if you use like a top single, single at eight, right? Then that would be like your benchmark performance, your ability to repeat that performance and do that same weight, that same 200 for six or that same single at eight is your mark of I am recovered fully, okay? So physiological recovery, 
is the things that you do to actually promote and shorten that time frame of healing and recovering as much as possible. Sleep, nutrition, hydration, manage your psychological stress. Basically it, right? Okay. We don't have a whole lot of stuff we can do there, but we can optimize those. And the be- probably the better way to think about that is if you don't optimize those things, your recovery will be prolonged. Okay? Sure. If, you, if you sleep three hours a night, your recovery will be prolonged, right? If you don't eat enough calories, your recovery will be prolonged. It will take more days in between training sessions for you to f- get back to a certain level of performance. If you don't stretch, it's probably not going to have that much of an effect. Like it just, it's negligible. If you don't foam roll, it's not going to be a big deal. Okay. Your timeline to recovery is the same, whether you stretch, didn't stretch, foam roll, didn't foam roll, used your Theragun, didn't use your Theragun, you know, perceived recovery is just a measure of how do I feel? Okay. That's where those things kind of come in. They alter sensations and perceptions. Like I felt like I was kind of dragging today. And even though you felt like you were kind of dragging, you maybe fully recovered to where you could go in and do it. It just like would feel you would, it would kind of just feel like it, like it sucked. So you go in and you jump on your foam roller, you do some dynamic stretching, you get warmed up and all of a sudden like you feel better. Now, if your body is not fully healed up and you're not ready, just because you feel better doesn't mean you're actually going to go perform better, but you might feel better. Okay. There's a, that's a kind of a big picture of that. They do intermix where perception actually influences how you actually perform. Um, but, you know, as a good general way to think about it, get those big pillars in place, nutrition, hydration, sleep, manage your psychological stress. Okay. Because if you don't do those things, it could actually delay that timeline. And we're looking to not necessarily shorten the time for timeline beyond what is physiologically able, what we're able to, we're trying to not delay it. And, you know, if we, and then the rest of it's just icing on the cake to make us feel better. That is again. That's that's a that's a way of, of um, organized. I've ever heard physiological and perceived. And physiological is essentially that's what we're going to focus on. And as you said, perceived is is the nice stuff. And there would probably be a perception amongst people that the perceived stuff. And you can I can I can totally understand why the perceived stuff is the stuff that's going to speed up the recovery. Whereas mm-hmm. and you said it's just going to make you feel better. But mm-hmm. I presume there's a lot more psychology to it. But if I can, I can really understand why people stretching and foam rolling would think it's going to speed it up. But as you said, to be mindful of what actually is going to improve us at a physiological level is going to be what you spoke about. Again, the adequate calories, sleep, psychological stressors down, and so on. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you can run the experiment yourself and, you know, see, you know, if you just like you, but you have to hold everything the same. Like you have to sleep eight hours. You have to take in the same amount of water, same amount of calories, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So like literally put yourself in an isolation chamber where there's no external stressor on you, um, you know, and try and just try stretching for a week or foam rolling every day for a week and then doing none. And then just see how long it takes you to, you know, can you get back at set a day earlier 
you know, a session earlier, whatever, you know, okay. Okay, cool. It maybe it, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but um, I'm tempted to say it probably doesn't. And, but really let, that's not to discount the effect of the, that perceived recovery, because like that is important, right? How we feel is important. And you know, like no one wants to walk around feeling like trash. So, you know, if that stuff makes you feel better, like I'm not saying don't do it because sure, go do it, but know where it stands in the hierarchy of everything and don't utilize your foam roller as a band-aid for not taking care of one of your big pillars. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a good, really nice kind of summary on it. Um, and like the, the foam roller, like it's, I don't know, as, as common in, in the States, but in, in, in Ireland with team sports, it's like give somebody a foam roller and all the team is rolling on on their foam roller and yeah, they're, they're warming up or they're mobilizing it. It's just there's such a breakdown in communication there between what's going to actually carry over to the pitch or the sports and what what actually is, is, is working, you know? Um, yeah, and I think a lot of people that feel like chronically that they need a lot of these things may just need better fatigue management in the first place, like going all the way back to the programming yeah. aspect. If you're chronically overworking yourself to the point of like you – if you if you're doing so much work in a single session that you're actually on a four day recovery timeline, but you've set up your program to where the next sessions in three days, you're probably walking into every session feeling a little beat up to where you feel like you need to have that. Yeah, it comes back to the the the, the program. The outline is right is the motor one. So if you were to adjust the program a bit to where you didn't cause so much disruption to where you actually could feel fresher and you manage the input side of that equation a little bit better, then you might not need the stuff to actually just try and make you feel better and feel like you can actually get through the session. Yeah. Okay. It's really good. And again, that kind of wraps up our competitive powerlifter and just the last kind of two points, we're just listening to your body, which we've spoken off a lot. Yeah. That's the auto-regulation aspect. It's going to tie you with the auto-regulation big time here. Okay. So like, for powerlifters, like we have got nailed like four or five principles there that are just that are just key and just not just checklists but everything and it just, and it just shows that it the uh, it's such a global approach, isn't it? People think yeah. like you know trying to stay injury free is a matter of doing one thing or do, putting this into the program or activating your glutes in this way. like it's so global and there's so. I suppose multi-factor, multi-factorial is the, if I were to keep the proper term, but it's just so much going on. Um, you always have to have to have your eyes open to it, don't you? 100%. Yeah. It comes down to what do you need, yeah. really. It's, it's a very individualized approach. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. So we're going to change gears slightly here, okay? And we're going to focus on just, if you could just explain to us, Jacob, like, the science of pain and injuries. Okay. And like I heard you, you spoke earlier on, but like the sensitivity that people feel when it comes to pain and so on. So like what exactly is happening and you know, how, how aware or how cautious should we be when, when we feel pain? Yeah. So first thing is to realize we all deal with pain at some point in our life and we kind of ignore it. And to give an example there, uh, probably the one that you know, my repeat listeners will uh, have heard me say before is you, we've all gotten a paper cut at some point in our life and it really hurts, but 
at some point we just put a bandaid over it and say, we're going to be big boys and girls and go to work today. You just ignore it. Even though it might be a six out of 10 pain in that moment. And it's associated with some tissue damage because we cut ourselves. Um, but we really just don't let it bother us. We just move on versus someone may feel like a two out of 10 back pain that really is not related to any structural damage whatsoever. And it paralyzes them with worry and apprehension to the point they will not let themselves move or exercise that day. And it creates a much larger disability for that person. And so when we think about pain, it, we, the, I guess the classic thought around pain is that pain would be synonymous with some sort of tissue-based injury, some sort of tissue damage that is occurring within our body. And as we've learned more and more about pain, we see that that's not always the case. We can have pain with tissue damage. We can have pain in the absence of tissue damage. And a lot of the pain that we feel, even acute pain, may not necessarily be a good reflection of the level of damage within our body. So we can view pain a lot more as a, it's a better reflection of the level of sensitivity that we currently feel, not an accurate representation of the level of tissue damage that we have. Anyone who has ever just strained a muscle, a mild strain in their low back, can know how much that can floor you to where you feel like you can't move but then you can have the same or maybe even higher level of muscle strain in your quad and be fine. Like you can still function with it. You might not be able to squat, but like you're walking around, you're doing okay. But then you get that little mild muscle strain in your low back and you're like, dude, I'm in spasms. I can't make myself a sandwich. I can't get off the couch. I can't roll over in bed. And you're so much more disabled by it. But then we also see in what we call a normative, the normative data, we see that there is a lot of degenerative changes that happen within our bodies that stay completely silent. They never lead to, they never lead to symptoms. So as an example there, degenerative disc disease um, or de uh, degenerative joint disease in the lower back. For those of us in our 30s, about 30 to 40% of us have degenerative disc disease in our low backs, just as a product of normal aging and genetic influences being one of the biggest ones there. And so, but they, but it's totally silent and it's asymptomatic. There's no issue whatsoever. And if it's asymptomatic and it doesn't cause us any limitation and we're out just living our life as if it was never there, is it actually an injury? Eh, probably not, right? Because at the end of the day, injury is about the disability that it creates for you. The paper cut is less of an injury than the two out of 10 back pain because it disabled you less, mm -hmm. even though the pain was greater. That's a real good, um, that's a real good view on it. I've never heard it explained that like that an injury is, is basically how much it forces you to kind of lose your mobility. Yeah. So it, how much does it make you stop? Yeah. So the first thing that we need to realize is because pain can be related to tissue injury. It can be related to structural damage. And a lot of times the acute pain 
is related to structural damage. It may, the level of pain may not necessarily be related. Okay. So a meaning that, you know, just because it's a nine out of 10 pain doesn't necessarily mean it's a nine, that you've ripped something off the bone. Okay. It just, it hurts. <laughs> and so even a mild level of tissue damage may lead you to a very acute pain because it's a shock to the system. But as you accommodate that pain level can go down and it may not, and it may go down at a faster rate than the tissue healing occurs. Right. A good way to think about that is, um, hot tubs. So if you dip your toe in a hot tub, you initially recoil because the water's so hot. It's a shock to the system that you were not used to. But as you dip into it and you start to accommodate to it, it, you can handle it better, right? That the heat of the water did not necessarily change. Okay. Just that it was less of a shock to the system. Likewise, when it initially made you recoil, it wasn't actually burning you because you are now able to go sit in that same water at the same heat without boiling your skin off. It wasn't actually burning you. It was a shock to the system. And so that's how you can kind of view this, how you can view pain. Pain, the higher the level of pain, it's more like the shock to the system. And the more we can accommodate, the more we can start to ease that perception down of what we have going on. And that's really where the exercise intervention for pain starts to come in, at least in how I approach it, which is attack the thing that's bothering you. And don't just back away from it forever and just hope and pray to God that it gets better. Confront it and confront it in a tolerable manner and gradually ease back into things. And that is how we can start to approach and basically push that accommodation process along so that you can sink into the hot tub a bit more and sink into that perception so that we can basically silence it again. Now, Go ahead. I thought you were going to say right. something. Um, okay. Because it, it's on my mind. I know I forget it if you keep going. So if that person is feeling, we'll say, a 9 out of 10 pain, and there's no structural damage, and there's no tissue damage, is it just a case they have to man up? Or what is, what's at play there if they're, if they're feeling this intense pain? Yet they've gotten an MRI, they've gotten an X-ray, um, there doesn't seem to be anything showing up. Where, what's, what's the top? What's going on there? Well, if so again it's a better reflection of sensitivity so we need to think of pain as having what we call bottom-up influences okay so actual um nerve signals coming from your tissues okay and top-down influences which is your cognitive processing coming from your brain right now i'm not going to go i won't get too far down this rabbit hole because i can talk for an hour on this <laughs> but what you feel is a reflection of the inputs coming in, okay? Those signals coming into your body or coming into your brain and a, all your past experiences, all of your thoughts, feelings, apprehensions, worry, what did that mean to me? Everything influences, whoa, what's that level of pain, okay? So when somebody says nine out of 10 pain, Really what you have to realize is that is their rating of pain. That may not actually be like, you can't put pain into some sort of machine and say, oh, there it is. So like we're on a podcast. I assume you are used to editing podcasts. And so you've seen your decibel meter, right? Yeah. You've seen your decibel meter. You can measure the intensity of those sound waves, right? And 
but, and so you have this like objective reasoning that says, oh yeah, that is plus three decibels, plus six decibels. And, but if you get distracted right now while we're talking and you start thinking on a point that we're, ta that we're talking on and you're like, oh yeah, that, how am I going to implement that? You may not know what we said for the next five minutes because your mind went elsewhere. You had a top-down influence changing your perception, okay? Even though the intensity of those sound waves was exactly the same. You didn't turn the volume down in your car. You didn't turn the volume down in your headphones. Your brain turned down the volume on you because you put your mind elsewhere, okay? Likewise, you can get intensely focused on something and you can raise the volume on something that's even very, very, very low, okay? So when you think about pain the same way, you know, it could trigger something like you've had a low back injury before and it puts you out for a month and you couldn't train and like, it was pretty disabling to you. And there was some real structural damage on that. And you saw the MRI and you saw the disc herniation and you had the doctor tell you you're never lifting heavy again. It's only a matter of time doing that powerlifting thing. Those deadlifts are bad for your back. And you, you know, you got past it, but then, you know what, you felt a little, you felt a little tweak that influence of having that past experience of back pain could influence what you feel here. And that could influence your rating of nine out of 10 back pain. Okay. Even though there may not be structural damage here this time because it's perception. <laughs> and that's where we really have to dive into, you know, this rating of pain is more so a reflection of how someone is coping with their pain, not necessarily a reflection of pain as an objective measure or as an objective entity. It's a reflection of how they're coping with it because you can never separate the rating of pain from the organism that's giving you the rating and everything that goes with that organism. So when somebody tells me they have a nine out of 10 pain, even if, if there is structural damage, there isn't. That's telling me that is very intense for them. It's probably pretty disabling for them. And we should probably work with that, right? So we should probably modify something to help pull that down. And so, you know, whether there's tissue injury there or not, we should probably do something to help them ease that, okay? Or we could also ask, how are you doing with that? Is that, is that tolerable to you? I don't know too many people that would say nine out of 10 is tolerable to them, but is it tolerable to you? And when we get into like the five range, I'm going to start asking that question. Is that tolerable? Can you work through that? Is it, are you good with working through that? As long as we are confident that we are not causing further structural injury that could then lead to an objective disability down the road. I don't want to give you an avulsion fracture, you know? So if you have some sort of structural damage, some sort of structural tissue injury that needs to heal, we need to account for that. We need to be aware of that. And we need to understand that there is a process of healing that is going on. And pain itself may not be our only guide here. We might have a timeline that we have to follow just from a pure tissue healing standpoint. But if we are confident there is not a large scale tissue injury, and it is more a reflection of sensitivity right now, then we can be guided more just by the symptom. And as long as the symptom is not giving us a negative response, then we are basically clear 
to move forward, we have a bit of a green light there. Yeah, that's a real that's a real detailed approach to it, and and it's something and it's something myself. And I, I as you were explaining it, I was very much as you were saying, I was relating it back to injuries that I have at the moment. You know, and it's very easy to and how you have just say for example, and we go back to I don't know, like an adductor issue for example, and everyone would perceive a sumo deadlift to give an adductor issue, and whether it does it aggravated or not the minute like, I step up to do it, I'm expecting it, as you said. And my mm-hmm. past experiences of doing it have, so have led to pain and my understanding of anatomy would lead me to believe it's going to cause pain. Mm-hmm. And do you know what the gym bro says, it's going to cause pain. You have all these different uh, perceptions, I suppose. And right. then you, have, you already have your mind made up before you even do it. Right. Would you agree so, on that? Like, like, yeah, yeah so, that, so that goes into the predictive processing model, which okay. is kind of like the working model that we're using for understanding pain, which is when you, so we have, so let's say, let's take the adductor issue. Okay. You're going to have a nociceptive signal come up to, up the nervous system, and that's coming from the adductor tissue. Okay, so you have a nociceptor there, it's sending a nociceptive signal. So that input is, could lead to you feeling some sort it could lead to you feeling pain it could, you may just it may silence you may just silence it and perceive it as no threat whatsoever now you have your top down your prediction of what is actually happening there and if your prediction matches your incoming signal right then you would actually just cut off the incoming signal and you'd get the perception of what you would of what your prediction is telling you Okay. If the incoming signal is not large enough to overcome the prediction, then you, then you go with the prediction. Okay. And okay. So, so if you, if you have a very strong expectation that you are going to hurt and you're going to feel that adductor, whenever you go up there to pull, you're more likely to feel it. But Let's say that today you decided you were going to try this new warm-up routine that you just saw for the adductor. And, you know, maybe your favorite fitness influencer who you really respect, I put it up. We'll say it was me, okay? Because I'm going to toot my own horn and say, hey, you respect <laughs> me, you know? But um, so let's say I put up some routine, you respect me, you're going to follow this adductor warm-up routine because I typically marketed it to sumo deadlifters and said, yada, yada, this really helps. And you try it, you probably now have a different expectation just through that process of doing that, of what you think might happen, or at least you're a little more uncertain about what might happen when you go to pull. So now you may be able to silence that nociceptive signal a little bit more, or maybe that nociceptive signal wasn't there and you've silenced the prediction or you've changed the prediction. So now we've given you an experience of not feeling it. And now you know, oh, I can sumo deadlift without this adductor pain. And now we've given you a new experience. And now we've start to roll forward a new expectation. And the more we do it, the more we're setting in a new prediction coming from top down about what you expect to happen there. And that goes down a very big rabbit hole of how we can affect and how we can like work with pain. Um, is that the biopsychosocial model? We're kind of well, the biopsychosocial model is just a overview to of 
how we look at things, how we look at perception to basically say there are biological, psychological, and social influences on everything. So basically everything we've talked about is kind of that BPS that model. model. Okay. Yeah. So be biological being the, the tissue has an influence on some level, right? It might be injured. It might just be sending up some sort of irritated nociceptive signal, whatever. Psychological, what did it mean to you? What has been your past experiences? Um, social, uh, how do people treat you around that? What, um, what kind of support system do you have around that? What is cult culturally kind of how have you been taught to view pain and have you been taught man up or have you been, you know, our power in our powerlifting world, there's might be a certain culture around how we deal with injuries and pain. Um, that that's kind of that social side of things, but that's more of a over just a yeah. big model of how we look at it rather than just saying pain is equated to damage. It's pure biological. The more pain you feel, the more damage is there. Um, yeah, that's sorry for kind of pulling you no, back a bit. Um, I just had one last question on, on, on the idea of pain, right? So mm -hmm. you spoke about just how sometimes, you, like for example, picking up one of your warm ups, and I have a lot of respect for you, and I automatically feel better doing it. Is there any other ways of stopping that nociceptive signal? You spoke earlier on about maybe like intense focus. Um, is there anything else in the literature that says that can? can stem that signal or give us a more positive approach to it as, as opposed to just saying there's nothing wrong with me. I have to get on with it. Is there any other kind of more practical things we can do? Well, that, that's where I think that, you know, I can tell you all day long that you are okay. You can do it. I can show you a clean MRI and tell you that adductor is not torn. There's no signs of tendinitis in there. Uh, you're, like, it's good. It's good. Like tissue's fine. Right. Um, and maybe it's just overloaded and it's irritable. I can tell you you're fine all day. There is something to be said though, for just experiential learning and saying, you just got to go through the damn process, you know, and you just got to show yourself you're okay sometimes. Right. So this is kind of how I think we're, um, where exercise modifications come in for pain. So if we were to look at your adductor issue, we would try and look at what are the exercise modifiers that we can utilize to help you. So we might start by saying, do you feel that pain whenever you just go into your sumo positioning? Just in your setup, you're not even pulling. Because if that was the case, maybe it's just a range of motion issue it's just a positioning issue, in which case we alter the position and let you work by alt in an altered position where we stay out of that sensitized state. And then we gradually ease you back into it. That's the accommodation process. But you're okay in your setup and we then have you pull and it's, it's actually more load, load determined. So you can pull your warmups, you're okay. You can pull 70%. You're okay. You get to that. You kind of cross that 80% threshold. There's your pain. We might have to pull. We might have to work a little bit lighter for a little while. Um, and then we might have to increase your internal load via a tempo or a pause or something else. Maybe we start doing pause deadlifts because it forces you to work underneath that intensity range that you get that pain that you get that pain from. And all the while, what we're really doing there is trying to increase 
your body's tolerance to that load by saying, here's your baseline at 75%. We're going to go and we're going to increase that just very, very gradually, five pounds at a time until you're up to your 80% number. And then we're going to, and we're going to see how, how you get along because you're probably not going to, you're probably not going to have a sharp, um, no pain to eight out of 10 pain in a five, within a five pound or two and a half kilo window. It's probably not going to happen. There's probably going to be a gradual ramp up process if it's determined primarily by load. So what we're doing there is we're accommodating. And when I say like, we're kind of like silencing it a lot, some of that is, you know, maybe some of that's physical, maybe some of that is predictive, maybe some of that's psychological, you know, it's this big multifactorial mesh. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I can pinpoint any of it to say like, that was the thing that happened. All I know is, or all I hypothesize is that's the process that we want to follow to help you get there. That's a real good, that's a real good approach. So find the pain free range of motion if it's there and mm-hmm. from there just load it so essentially kind of gather positive experiences and just yeah. keep keep building on them positive movement experience is kind of what i call it for a lot of my people um as so real life example um patient i current i was consulting with just recently dealing with lateral hip pain when she squats okay and it kicks in halfway through her squat and then gradually intensifies as she reaches parallel okay and it's not like a front hip flexor pinch like pain it's outside glute area type pain and um we were doing a telehealth conference and so i was kind of watching her go through it and we went through and i was like i had her just lay on her back and pull her legs up kind of into her squat position so she's totally unloaded in that case we're not putting any force through it she's just passively pulling into the position and totally fine can go through the whole motion no issue whatsoever so not really a range of motion sensitivity in that case right it's just it's just there because she can do the range of motion um we then had i had her move actively through that range of motion and it was fine so it's not really a movement issue okay uh, we put her into a body weight squat so we've added now added some load we've added at least the load of her body weight to it and she drops down into it and that pain kicks in and it's kind of tolerable and then it intensifies we load 75 pounds on the bar and it was and she was like cringing through talking me through it because it magnified with more force going through the system we then um so uh, we did 75 pounds first then we went down to body weight to see how that would look and so we found that, okay, it's definitely load sensitive here and we're going to adjust the load. Now for her rehab, we rehab, my rehab process is very much focused on that accommodation process. So we, we adjusted a few other factors. We adjusted um, what I call biomechanical load, which was basically just a fancy way of saying your technique. So we elevated her heels to make her a little more knee dominant and take some of the localized stress away from her hip. That made it feel better. Okay. So we reduced the actual biomechanical load of it. Um, changing her, we tried changing her squat stance again, and kind of another biomechanical load didn't do anything to it. So we left that alone. Uh, we had her do a goblet squat instead of a back squat. So she was a little more upright, changed that biomechanical load. And, uh, that was okay. 
And then we found that speed was an issue. So we found that whenever, or we at least found it was the modifier. So whenever I had her slow her eccentric down, it really reduced the pain that she was feeling on the eccentric. But whenever we, but if we slowed down her concentric, she would feel it more in her concentric. So we basically put all this data and information together to say, we're going to do a heel elevated goblet squat with a three second eccentric tempo and a up and then just up under control with your normal pace. And that's where we pulled back from the back squat. Now we have established a baseline of you are now squatting with tolerable levels of hip pain, two out of 10 hip pain. She's like, I can manage that, but I don't want it to be nine out of 10 where it is with my back squat over here. So the first thing that we're probably going to do is we're going to increase the load in that goblet squat. We're going to increase the external resistance. And then we'll probably work on um, bringing her heels back down so that she's in a little bit more of our natural squat positioning. Or maybe we'll leave the heels elevated and bring in the empty barbell for a back squat and change biomechanical load that way. We're going to play with it and test. We'll repeat tests to figure out where it goes. And then once we can get her into a back squat, just a pure body weight or empty bar back squat, and it's tolerable, we then have a clearance point to say we can start just increasing the external resistance on that back squat and start accommodating to that to the point that now 75 pounds eventually won't be cringy. And when you do that and like you are objectively better and that's kind of the data points that we're looking for. And so you, you do a lot of this testing and modification to find out what kind of modifiers can you use to bring it down to this tolerable level and then build off of that baseline to try and bring your way back to normal, which currently is not available to you. It sounds so simple and so practical. Oh, good. I'm, I, it sounded complex whenever it's coming out of my, in my head. So I was, I'm glad it sounds simple. No, no, it's really good. And it's so detailed, Jacob, so detailed, all your stuff so far. And it's really, really valuable for people. Like I'm sure there's people listening on here that, that are lifters and every now and again, they come across little roadblocks and how to, how to, um, how to deal with those roadblocks is probably one of the biggest struggles which I think I think with strength training anyway. Like doing the doing the lifts and the open up the new program, getting your food ready, all that stuff is you know, that's part that's enjoyable, like but it's dealing with the roadblocks and you put like a real simple like altering the range of motion, altering the load, you said like mechanical things that are going to improve it, um like biomechanical things, it's 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 real practical. And good, good. I knew we, we, once we got started talking that we were going to go on and, and I'm looking here at my clock. It's an hour. It's, we're gone an hour and 15, right? We've got two of the four That's topics okay. done. So okay. <laughs> what we might do, um, Jacob, if at some stage in the future, we might come on and we might just talk around prehab and rehab for the strength sure. athlete. Is that Absolutely. okay? Cause yeah, I, yeah, I don't do want to take up, take up and yeah, exactly. A part two, because that was amazing. And I, I just looked at my phone here an hour and 15 at, yeah so next time yeah so next time let's talk about how a little bit more on the preventative side of things with using exercise and then maybe how we integrate um and the big topic i I think we were going to get into was maintain how do we actually maintain our capacity through the rehab process while we're injured so we'll get into that i guess we can get into that one in a part two amazing that was that was so enjoyable that last hour and 50 
Jacob, thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. And if people want to find you, want to contact you, how can they do so? Uh, so my, my main platform where most people can find me, you'll see all the content I put out is my Instagram. Um, it's at dr.jacob.harden. I put out a lot of self-help stuff to help you navigate your own injury and recovery pathway. Um, I teach continuing education on this rehab process and kind of reducing injury risk through my company, Prehab 101. So anybody who is looking for that side of things, that's where you can find me. Um, hopefully I'll be able to make it back to y'all side of the world at, you know, hopefully maybe this year, but if not, then I'll definitely be there next. And then if you're need some help, then we do virtual consultations, um, or in-person consultations in Orlando and that my website's Orlando sports rehab, uh, com for that. So if anybody needs some help, I'm happy to help, but, um, continue the conversation with me. If you have questions, anything like that, I'm always very open to it. Just slide into my DMs um, or shoot me an email, prehab101 at gmail.com. And I'm more than happy to continue this conversation with you guys. Jacob, top man. Really, really appreciate it. Between now and when we talk again, stay safe, stay healthy. And thank you again for jumping on. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. No problem.